Good morning, Living Grace, and thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you making this part of your Sunday routine. Uh, we are in the middle of a study on the Beatitudes, so before we get rolling, let's let's read through those Beatitudes together. If you've got your, your Bibles, we're going straight into Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are, we are grateful for you, bursting with gratitude for what you're doing in our lives, even in the midst of uh, working at home or, or being laid off, we know that you are in control and we trust you, Lord. We pray that during this time, as we try to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that you would open up our, our hearts, open up our minds to receive your word and understand better. May we walk at it today um, as people who have been deepened in the knowledge of God. Thank you for all that you're going to do. I pray that you would speak through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the Beatitudes. We're figuring out what Jesus was communicating to his disciples then and to us now through those. And uh, we're at a, a beginning stage in Jesus' ministry. According to Matthew, he's gone straight from you know baptism to being tempted in the wilderness to calling some disciples, starting a healing crusade, and then straight into the Sermon on the Mount, where we just read uh, Matthew chapter 5. And the Sermon on the Mount takes place in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and it starts off with the Beatitudes. Jesus launches into this sermon with a, a BuzzFeed listicle of the attributes of a disciple. And that's what we're, we're learning about. Um... So now he's, he's sitting down on the hillside and he begins teaching the crowds that followed him. If you're just reading in, in uh, chapter 5, it's, it's easy to assume he's just talking to his disciples. But if you look at the context of 5 through 7, you realize at the end of 7, it's the crowds that are responding. The crowds that are gathered there on that hillside. So he's, he may be directing it at his disciples and at those who are following him, but everybody is listening. Everybody has rapt attention on Jesus and what he's got to say. And what he's saying here. Is, is very familiar to me, not just because I've read that chapter before, but uh, because it's similar to going through basic training. When I was 21, I joined the Army. I went to basic. It's a long bus ride in the middle of the night to nowhere, Missouri. And then then some big scary guy gets up on, the, on your bus, and he's got a real wide-brimmed hat, and he's very clear about how quickly he wants you off of that bus with all of your stuff and where to stand. 
And then we roll into action and the bus is shaking like something's let loose a velociraptor in that thing. And we dismount, get over there, and we stand just like he wanted us to. And that begins a very long night of indoctrination. We are taught how to how to stand, how to speak, when to speak, and we get new clothes. We learn a whole lot of new new language. And we're given material that we're meant to study, learn, and memorize by breakfast the next morning. But it's not the next morning, it's that morning, because it's currently 1 a.m. when you're getting that stuff. And there you are with a duffel bag in front of you with clothes you haven't worn yet, trying to recite the Soldier's Creed and get it all figured out before somebody hands you eggs. That is the indoctrination process. There's a lot of, a lot of new things thrown at you. But it's creating a, an expectation of what's to come and how you're going to act and react when it does come. And that's what I see here with Jesus. He is giving an orientation to his disciples, to these new followers, the beginning of his ministry. This is what you have to look forward to as a disciple of Jesus. And he lays it out. And this is how you are going to respond as a disciple of Jesus. And he lays it out. And that's, that's where we start. With Jesus, uh, maybe not necessarily drilling his disciples into the lean, mean missionary force of the, the first century, but he is giving them the overall layout of the land. So as we dive into it, it's easy to forget that the Sermon on the Mount is one one big sermon. You might say to yourself, but it looks like a collection of sermons. And there's two reasons to say that. One, because it very likely is a collection of sermons that Jesus taught on a regular basis, and two, because all the little titles that translators gave to help us. A real, real, uh, real helpful bunch there. It doesn't confuse the subject any. But Matthew treats this chunk of scripture like one sermon. We talked about the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 7, how he stops to teach the crowds, and at the end of chapter 7, it's the crowds that respond and are astonished at his teachings. So Matthew is treating all of this as one sermon and as um, proper interpreters, we have to do the same. We have to treat the text the same way that the author did. So we'll use the Sermon on the Mount today as as our larger context for the Beatitudes. And as we wrestle with these orientation uh, teachings and the culture therein, we're going to focus very specifically on the mercy beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as beatitudes go, this one is the the most straightforward one. It it almost doesn't fit. Jesus is real good about the the upside-down culture of the kingdom and communicating that, yeah, this is how you think things are, but really, they're a lot more like this. And he'll use language that says almost expressively that, throughout the rest of the sermon. But this one particular beatitude stands out by being the most normal thing Jesus says. It doesn't get any clearer than blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. It it actually is the only one who sounds, that sounds nice. Like you could end the day at your job and somebody's like, hey, what are you going to do this weekend? You'd be like, I'm going to go home and uh, practice being merciful. And they're like, yeah, okay, that." That sounds like a a decent person thing. Cool. But if you end the day and somebody asks you, what are you going to do on your weekend? 
and you say, I'm going to go home and practice being persecuted for Jesus, you're going to get weird looks because that's not normal language. Then we ask ourselves, so what gives Jesus? What? Why even include this beatitude? It actually comes across like an obvious statement. Well, of course, be merciful. You don't say, well, of course, be poor in spirit or, or of course, be persecuted. You, but you say, yeah, of course, be merciful. That, that one makes sense. It's just being a decent human being. So as this one sounds out of place, it requires a little bit more digging to understand what, uh, what Jesus is trying to get across here. And this is when we, we pull out like a handy-dandy concordance and we get real nerdy with it. And um, we see all the different places where Matthew talks about mercy, specifically where Jesus talks about mercy within the book of Matthew. And at first we got to figure out what, what does mercy mean? It's a uh, elio, I can't speak ancient Greek, so I'll just uh, I'll make sure that's across the bottom for you there. But it means to show mercy or pity, compassion, usually with an emphasis on an act of kindness to meet the need. And it's the most common word for mercy in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is going to use this thing several times, and that's good because now we've got to figure out what does this word mean to Jesus? Because as those of us know who have been communicating in English for a long time, we can say something and it means something totally different to the other person. If I say I'm frustrated, you might have a different connotation for frustrated and interpret that to mean, oh, he is angry. No, you would be wrong, according to how I use frustrated. So we look at the ways that Jesus used, uh, used mercy. And Jesus uses mercy in Matthew 10 times, so that makes it pretty easy to start narrowing that down. Uh, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus talks about mercy as one of the weightier matters of the law. We actually included that in the men's retreat last year where we talked about the weightier matters. This was one of them, alongside with uh, justice and, and faithfulness. Mercy was considered a weightier matter of the law. In Matthew 18, 33, Jesus equates mercy with forgiveness in one of his parables. So it's a matter of the law. It's forgiveness, but it's also to show mercy, compassion, usually with an emphasis on an act of kindness to meet a need. But Jesus uses it one other place, and this was the one that really got me excited. When confronting the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 7, Jesus says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Jesus is confronting the teachers of the law, with a saying from one of the prophets. And that's awesome. One, because he's putting people in their place and it's always fun to watch happen. But two, because that, that gives us a huge clue in how Jesus understands the concept of mercy. He's reminding them of what Hosea said. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So when we compare what Jesus says in the New Testament with that actual verse in the Old Testament, we can better understand how Jesus understands mercy. In the Old Testament, that verse is Hosea 6.6, 6, and some translations will read that as, as mercy. Other translations change that. And that's because the word in Hebrew there is hesed. I may be right on that pronunciation. I have no idea. But it translates to unfailing love, devotion, and kindness. It's actually a part of 
my, my favorite verse, uh, Jeremiah 31, 3. I have, I have loved you with an unfailing love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. So what this means to Jesus, what mercy means to Jesus, is something akin to God's unfailing love and kindness. Jesus' idea of being merciful includes in it the notion of showing God's unfailing love. And this beatitude is now sounding a little, little less doable. Now that Jesus has given the more, a more difficult characteristic to his hearers to live up to, how, how does he expect them to do that? And for that, we've got to look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at the passage in question. So now we're going to look at the, the greater context to see how Jesus intends his disciples, his followers, to execute mercy. In Matthew 5, 21, Jesus starts upping the game on the law. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It gets pretty intense. And this is Jesus defining the expectation with, with the negative. I want to I show mercy, I want you to show mercy and compassion. But so you know, here's what that doesn't look like. And here's what angry responses will result in. Notice how each of those, those three options just kind of increases in devastation, right? You go from just, you know, being judged to the council to hell. And that's just for being angry. That's for saying, you fool. I say worse things in my head to me. And so there's that. We continue down in uh, Matthew chapter 5 to verse 38. Jesus is quoting a well-known passage in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, basically saying, if you wrong me, I'm wronging you right back. And Jesus says, no, no, that, that's not for you. There is no more getting even for us, for disciples. In uh, some of the other areas that surround the mount, Jesus focuses on upping the degree of obedience, like the angry one we just looked at where it was, you know, you shall not murder. And Jesus is like, nah, you shouldn't even be angry inside. That, that's, that should be your stopping point. And even then, you're, you're liable to some, some bad consequences. So Jesus is focused on upping the degree of obedience to the law by making it a heart thing in some of the others. In this instance, he's actually attacking the practice and, and changing it all together. Someone hurts or offends you, you don't retaliate. You do not get even. That is not for you. You show mercy. You show the forbearance, the patience, and the unwavering love of God. Does that make us a doormat? Yes and no. No, not a doormat in the fact that we remain in an abusive situation. Jesus doesn't say, you know, turn the other cheek. In his response to an eye for an eye, he says instead, if someone strikes on one cheek, you turn the other to them. He doesn't say you turn around and then embrace that person and you just 
stay there and let it wail on you. So don't stay in an abusive situation. That is not what this implies. That said, never forget that Christianity is a martyrdom religion. People die for this. There are, there are people, as we speak, being beheaded across the Atlantic because of Jesus, because they believe in Jesus. American Christians uh, have a hard time with this because we don't like being uncomfortable. Following Jesus, though, isn't cupcakes on Sundays, and that's what he's getting across in this message. It, it's not all sunshine. And Jesus makes it very clear to those who are going to follow him. Because at the end of this, there, there's, it's time for a decision. Follow or not. And that's what he is broadcasting. Here are the expectations you choose. Immediately after this passage, we move down to verse 43. Love your enemies. So the bar that Jesus is setting for, for what it means to be a disciple it just keeps rising, right? First, I have to control my anger responses. Then I, I can't get even when somebody hurts my feelings. And now I have to love my enemies too? In verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That points directly back into the Beatitudes. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the, on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And, and it, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you notice there's no ifs in any of that? There's not a single if. This is a, a when statement, not an if statement. You will have enemies. You will be persecuted if you follow Jesus, if you are truly his disciple. How many of these people on this hillside listening are like, well, sign me up for that. Give me a little persecution. We're going to park here for a minute because we need to address the crowd. Normally, when you're looking at, at understanding a text, you want to understand the audience uh, toward the beginning of the situation. But I, I really wanted to hold off on that. They are they're a mixed bag, just like you and me, just like anybody listening to any sermon ever. They're a mixed bag, different people separated by nuance and societal norms. And even here, we have that same mixed bag. There's a group I want to hone in on, though, in, in this pack. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, it's this, this religious elite guys, the uh, Pharisees, or one of the other C's. No, no, I want to talk about the zealots. The zealots. They're, they're a political party that exists at this time, and they're, they're militant, which makes them really interesting. Their goal is to liberate Israel from Roman occupation and Roman rule 
through violent means. We know they are listening because one of Jesus' disciples is there, and his name is Simon the Zealot. When you have more than one Simon, you got to start handing out nicknames. He, Jesus does the nickname thing a lot. But we have at least one that we know of. We can assume in a large crowd, and Jesus always pulled in a large crowd. There's, there's more than one who uh, ascribed to this political party. The zealots uh, become problem children for the empire and will later be the cause of the Roman siege that wipes out the temple in 70 AD. But right now, they are alive and well in, in this time period. Now imagine them hearing the words of Christ. Like, when you think of a zealot, somebody who hates Roman occupation, Roman rule, and, and centurions on every block, they're like Starbucks there. That kind of person in the crowd, I'm surprised there wasn't a riot right there. I'm surprised their, their faces didn't melt off in white-hot fury at Jesus' words. Your meekness, Jesus, according to a zealot, won't topple an emperor. Your mercy won't remove a regime. And your love won't give us back our country. That would be the standing of a zealot trying to listen to the words of, of this guy who claims to be the Messiah on a hillside. And this can be hard to understand from an American perspective. Uh, let's, let's make it a little more personal. Let's say a foreign country has come along and overtaken America, overtaken the United States, and has put us under a military rule. How do the Christians respond? Uh, Jesus has prescribed a zero retaliation policy. Would we follow that? Would you follow that? Kind of flies in the face of don't tread on me, right? Would we turn to the Second Amendment or would we turn the other cheek? Would we be merciful or militant? Would our, would, our, would our battle cry be Viva la Revolucion or Sola Dea Gloria? It's hard when revolution is in your DNA. It's a, it's a part of who we are. But this is hypothetical to bridge a gap in our understanding and to, to stand in somebody else's shoes as they hear this message of Jesus. Something powerful that Jesus establishes without outright saying it is that mercy is bi-directional. It, it goes two ways. This crowd of listeners and disciples, along with many of us, we see mercy as a one-way street, as flowing from the, the greater to the lesser. When I, I show an ant mercy when I don't step on it. Greater to lesser. But we are called to exercise compassion and pity towards our enemies, even if they are above us. Even if they're the government that you hate. Even if they are the boss you don't like. Even if they are the parent that you don't get along with. We are called to show mercy, even from lesser to greater. Jesus' idea of mercy is bi-directional. 
I get the impression that it ruffles feathers even, even today. So what is mercy? It's God's love. It's unfailing love, unwavering compassion. It's patience. It's forbearance. It's a deliberate, a deliberate act of kindness to meet a need, even for somebody we don't like. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This isn't karma. You, you don't you don't get what you put out there. I, don't, I put out mercy energy and I get mercy energy back. That's not what this is. The closest that we come to understanding the direct correlation between action and reward regarding mercy here is the golden rule in chapter 7. Still in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you may not have known that the golden rule came from Jesus, but it did. It didn't originate with your kindergarten teacher, I promise and that golden rule instructs us, in this case, to show mercy to others if we wish to receive mercy in return. The payoff, as Pastor Richie has, has put it in this series, or the, the reward, is not a pick-and-choose situation. It, just as much as the characteristics listed in the Beatitudes are not pick-and-choose. You don't get to just walk down the, the Beatitude aisle and go, I want a little bit of that, I want some of that, and never any of that. Not happening. We don't get to just pick and choose. This is a whole person concept encapsulated in 11 verses. Whole person. It's the ideal disciple, just like Proverbs 31 creates this picture of an ideal woman. Whereas Proverbs 31 woman is talking about a, a woman over the course of her entire lifetime. The Beatitudes are a snapshot of the character of a disciple. And this is the ideal model for us to look to on what Jesus expects of a disciple, what a true follower of Christ looks like to Jesus. The Beatitudes paint the picture of a whole idea of a disciple. And mercy is just a single part. And I, I can't even get that right. If, if we're honest, none of us get mercy all the way right all the time. The Sermon on the Mount is helpful in understanding the beatitude of mercy, but it is also terrifying. Because all of these passages, all of the Sermon on the Mount, leads to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's chapter 7. We started with blessings and promises. We, we end with decisions and consequences. Like he does with a lot of his parables, Jesus brings this teaching to a, a point of decision. And chapter 7 ends in the three passages illustrating the consequences for not following Christ. For not setting your life up to live out this, this sermon, to live out these characteristics, and to follow him. There's a, a passage about a narrow path. In a narrow gate, there are few who find it and few who get through. And he follows that up with people who are like, but Jesus, I, we did so much in your name. We did so much ministry for you. And he would say, I, I don't know you. Go away. And then he follows that up with these two guys. 
They are building houses. And Jesus says, the person who listens to these words, this message, these teachings, and applies them, employs them into his life, he's like a person who builds their house on a solid foundation. That when a storm comes, at the end of it, the house is still standing. At the end of being tested and judged and tried by a storm, it's still there. The other guy who does not employ the Beatitudes, who does not apply the Sermon on the Mount to his lifestyle and does not follow Jesus, is like somebody who builds their house on the, on the sand and when the storm comes, trial and judgment and testing, there's nothing left. It's destroyed. How can there be any hope for me? How can there be any hope for any of us? We have established that meeting just, just one attribute of the Beatitudes is impossible. We didn't even focus on the end of the passage about loving your enemies, where Jesus extols the crowd to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I can't live up to this model. I can't meet the standard expected of me. How can I expect to, to make it through a narrow gate? How can I expect to be even allowed into heaven? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Those are the words of Paul in Romans after going through a couple of chapters of saying, I, I don't do the things that I want to and know I should do, and I always end up doing the things I don't want to do and aren't good. I'm a wretched man. We're wretched people. But he concludes with thanks. Thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Or if we if we if we stick with our author, we stick with Matthew here. And in Matthew chapter 19, the disciples have just watched this rich man walk away from Jesus, walk away from following Jesus, and Jesus saying it's gonna be really hard for well-off people to make it into heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. Both God, all things are possible. This is possible. Making it through the narrow gate. Getting in, into heaven. Just following Jesus. This is possible because Jesus lived a perfect life. Died the death we sinners deserved and earned. He took our cross and he suffered the wrath of God as a substitute for us. A sacrifice to make us right with God. And then, and he confirmed his deity and he validated all of his claims by coming back from the dead three days later. That made a way where there was no way. All that is left for me to do, for all of us to do, is repent, believe, and repeat. Every day. Repent, believe, 
repeat. Even trying to be perfect as God is perfect for a whole day is impossible. Because I I interact with other humans and I can't. My, my thoughts, my feelings, just the, even going back to the angry responses, I can't not do some of that. All that is left for me to do is repent, believe, and repeat. And now we, we live under the beauty of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, it starts in verse 3 saying, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's sin. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My doing doesn't save me. My mercy doesn't get me through the gate. Only Jesus gets me to heaven. Because only Jesus made the way by becoming the way. My mercy now is an outflow. It's it's an outflowing of the transformation that's taken place in me because of Jesus. With my faith firmly planted in Jesus and, and his grace working on me, I aim for the character of a disciple of Jesus. Not as a to-do list of something that I've, I've got to become, but because I want to. He's changed my want to, and now I want to live this way that he prescribes. And I hope this, the same is true for you. I'm, I'm not going to meet the perfection of God. I'll never make that mark. Not on this side of eternity. I'm going to fail at mercy. But that won't stop me from trying to be merciful. And even though I fail, I still receive mercy. His mercies are new every morning, and I hang on to that promise desperately. When, when we fall short of showing mercy, patience, the loving kindness of God to others, we turn to Jesus. And he reminds us of the mercy he's already given us. And then, just maybe, we have a little bit more mercy to show somebody else in the future. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you show us mercy. You're the source of mercy and unfailing love. And we pray 
to you because there's there's nowhere else to go. Who else has has the words of life except for you? And Father, we repent. We're we're sinners. It doesn't even matter what time anybody's watching this. That we've probably already sinned, even just today. Now we lean on you for forgiveness, and we turn away from those old ways, and now we believe in your Son Jesus. He is the only way to eternal life. We pray, Lord, that you would change our want to. You would help us as we aim to attain that that disciple character in our lives. Change our, our wants. May we love the things that you love, hate the things that you hate, as we fall perpetually more in love with you. We love you, Lord. We, we trust you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I hope this conversation has blessed you. Um, if you've got any prayer requests or questions or you have started the process of repenting, believing, and repeating, we would love to hear from you. You can let us know that you've made this forward motion in your life by letting, typing something in the comments. You can email us at contact at livinggracelv.org. And we love you. We want, we want you to know that. Jesus loves you. We love you. And uh, we've got a song here at the end for us all to respond to, to God's challenge to us today. Let's respond in worship. God bless you. Have a great day.